So like I said, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 11, specifically verses 23 uh, through 28. But it's been a a pretty incredible last year, as you all are very aware. (laughs) I mean, we know this. It's been a weird year. It's been a very, very weird year. And it's, it's made even church and doing Christian things weird or different or confusing. We've kind of been confused a little bit about things. Uh, what was complicated? Before uh, COVID, we would get up on Sundays and go to church without a thought in the world. It was easy to do that. We didn't have to think about it. We didn't have to think about, well, should I wear a mask? Or is there some type of restriction for the space that I am? At? What's the capacity for the space? We didn't think about those things before COVID. The Christian life, going to church was, was just easy. It was, in a sense, thoughtless. It was normal. And we might even say uh, that, I, I, you know, I wish COVID never existed. I, I wish this never happened. I, I just want to go back to normal life, how it has been for so many years. I wish there was no lockdown orders. I wish there was no mask mandates. I wish none of that happened. I wish we could just make it disappear. And, and I know I've kind of thought some of those things, and I'm sure you have too. Uh, and it makes me actually think of a, a famous quote from The Lord of the Rings, of all books, uh, Fellowship of the Ring, first one. Uh, first book, chapter two, maybe you're aware of this quote. If you have read the books or watched the movies, I'm sure you are aware of it. Uh, this comes from uh, in the scene where Gandalf is, is telling Frodo about the ring. Uh, and he's, he's making Frodo aware that this ring that he got from Bilbo is actually this evil, wicked thing made by this evil man. Uh, and that Frodo is, indeed is in possession of this ring. And, and, and then Gandalf tells Frodo that the Dark Lord has returned, and he's returned to Mordor, and he's seeking the ring. And upon hearing this horrible news, Frodo says this. He goes, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. All we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us. And I think that that's, that's very true. You know, we might wish, oh, I wish COVID never happened. I wish things could go back to normal, but that's not our decision. We have to decide what to do today, circumstances that we are in. And so the question obviously becomes, how are we to live as Christians today? Today, with the circumstances that we're in today. Not what they used to be, not what we hope they are in the future, but how they are today. And if you look through church history, you see that in most times throughout history, the the deck was stacked against the Christian. It's almost always stacked against the Christian. The Christian always lives in hard times, always. You can look through church history, and then you can go to your scripture, and you can read your scriptures, and you can see also, oh, yeah, the believers in the Bible also lived in tough times when the deck seemed to be stacked against, against them. So what we're experiencing right now is it's not abnormal. It's actually very normal, and it's actually still very mild compared to church history and compared to the Bible. And so this is encouraging that we can go to the scriptures and see examples of people who live faithfully in times when the deck was stacked against the Christian or the believer. And so, like I said, we're going to be in Hebrews uh, today, specifically chapter 11. In chapter 11, if you know anything, it's called the Hall of Faith. And so, this book is written to a very Jewish audience. Uh, these, these, these are Christian Jews 
Um, and they're kind of drifting back into thinking maybe the old covenant. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe we should go back to the old covenant a little bit and not focus on the new covenant. And so in the middle of this, this, this incredible book, chapter 11, we see that the author of this book is, is explaining to this audience that, you know, wait a minute now. Even the saints in the Old Testament lived by faith. Even they lived by faith. And I'm going to show you this. You just imagine the, the, the author of this is just going to say, I'm going to show you all these Old Testament saints and how they lived by faith. And that's what we see in chapter 11. It's this hall of faith, all these examples of how these Old Testament saints lived by faith. And so we're going to look specifically at the life of Moses and how he lived by faith, especially at the time when he was in Egypt. And I, I, I guarantee you that it's going to bring great clarity to our lives today and how we are to live as Christians. And so this section, it starts with a definition of faith in, in verse 1 of chapter 11. It starts with de- definition. And this is important because that definition then should color our reading of the rest of the section. Every time the word faith is used in the section, which is a lot, we have to think of it in light of this definition that the author gives us in verse 1. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verse 1 of chapter 11, and then I'm going to jump over to verse 23, where we will be for the rest of our time. So follow along with me in your Bibles. Verse 1, chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And so specifically this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at four defining elements of Christian faith. Four defining elements of Christian faith. And before we really get into it, let's give a, a brief overview, history of what's going on here so we we can have a little bit of an understanding of, of this life that Moses was living by faith. And so familiar with especially the book of Genesis, uh, we're going to start with this man named Abraham. Uh, Abraham is the first patriarch. God comes to Abraham and he gives him a promise. He, he promises him uh, to make him into a nation with this more numerous than the stars in the sky. He promises him that he'll inherit this land and he promises him that through his offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then Abraham has a son, his name is Isaac. Isaac has a son, his name is Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and one of those sons is named Joseph. And as you guys probably very well know, then Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. And so he goes off into slavery into Egypt. But through God's providence, he becomes the leader of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And then God brings about a, a seven-year famine, and Joseph saves his people including his brothers, by allowing them to come live with him in Egypt, where there's a store-up of grain. And so that is a brief history of the Israelite people, the Hebrew people. And so fast forward 400 years, and the people, the Hebrews in, in Egypt, have proliferated. God has 
allowed them to be very fruitful and they multiply greatly and have so many numbers. They have many, many people in Egypt 400 years later. And obviously now there's a different Pharaoh. And this different Pharaoh forgets Joseph and forgets all of that came before. And he sees the Hebrew people and sees how fruitful they are and how many people there are. And they, he hates them and he fears them. He thinks, man, if they just decide to revolt, man, I might be done. There's just a lot of them. I need to do something. So he enslaves them. And he puts them to work, building all these incredible things. And he put, puts taskmasters over them, and he, they beat them, and they whip them. And the Hebrews are enslaved. And then he goes, you know, that enslaves them. But I, I have to fix the problem of them having so many kids. So what am I going to do? I'm going to have the Hebrew midwives kill any baby that's born if it's, a, if it's a boy. If a boy is born, the Hebrew midwives have been commanded by Pharaoh to kill that baby boy. And the Hebrew midwives disobey that order from Pharaoh. Uh, and the Hebrews continue to have kids. And so what's the, second, what's the second plan? The second plan is to, you know, the Hebrew midwives disobeyed. So we're just going to command all the people in Egypt, if you see a baby Hebrew boy, grab him and throw him into the Nile and drown him. That'll fix the problem. And so that's the context here as we jump into our text this morning. And so let's look at the first defining element of Christian faith, and that is that Christian faith delights in the things of God. Christian faith delights in the things of God. So look with me at verse 23. It says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful. Because they saw that the child was beautiful. So, a little bit of a side note. If while I was reading this, this section of scripture for us, you maybe have noticed that there's, there's something about faith here in this text, throughout this whole chapter, that there's a positive side to it and that there's a negative side to it. Faith positively is for something. It's for something. And negatively, it's against something. It's like, a two, it's like a coin. There's two sides to faith. One side is for something, has to be for something. One side has to be against something. And so as we go through our points and as we go through your, this text, we're going to see that these points are either for something or against something. And so in this case, we're looking at a positive side of faith. The positive side of faith is that Christians and Moses and his parents, they delight in the things of God. They're for the things of God. And this is the case, uh, this positive and negative side to faith, because there is no neutrality in this world. And you, maybe you've heard uh, this, this, this idea of neutrality. Oh, I take the neutral position, or I take the, the median position, or I'm on neutral ground or common ground. And we hear this neutrality stuff all the time, but that's just a lie. Neutrality doesn't exist. You're either for something or against something. And that's the case. You're either for God or you're against God. You're either positively living for something by faith or you're choosing not to and then therefore, by necessity, you're sinning. And so there is no neutrality. And when you look at the life of Moses, there is no neutral position that he takes. There's no neutral position. So I just want you to, that's kind of a side note here as we start to dig in now. So let's get back to this, this phrase, the beauty of the child. They saw that Moses was beautiful in their, in their sight. And that's kind of interesting because you go, well, don't all parents think their kids are beautiful when they're born? Like even non-believing parents think that their kids are 
beautiful or good looking or whatever. Like they're amazed by this. So that doesn't seem like anything special. Uh, likely, though, what it, it's wrapped up in this or what this means is that they recognize that Moses is an image bearer of God, that he bears the image of their creator. He reflects the beauty of God, as we all do, because we're all made in the image of God. Even the non-believer reflects the beauty of God because they're created in the image of God. See, God gives life. God is the author of life. So to delight in life is to delight in the author of life, the creator of life. So Moses' parents see the beauty of the child, and they're delighting in life, which means they're delighting in the author of life. They're delighting in God. They're delighting in the things that God loves. But there's something more to this. And we actually have to go to the book of Acts to see uh, another angle at this, uh, of what's happening here. And familiar with the book of Acts, the history of the, of the, the, the church in the beginning, uh, you maybe are familiar with a, a man named Stephen. He's considered to be the first Christian martyr. And he gives this incredible sermon right up to the point to when he gets stoned to death. And in this sermon, as he, as this sermon is really an overview of the Old Testament, he says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 20. It says this, At this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was beautiful in God's sight. So we see that God says that Moses is beautiful. God thinks that Moses is beautiful. And so the parents are delighting in the things that God does. And God loves Moses. So the parents love Moses. And this is, a, this is an interesting thing. Christians are to think God's thoughts after him. Christians are to think God's thoughts after him. So, if God thinks that a child is beautiful, I think that a child is beautiful. If God thinks that worship is necessary, I think that worship is necessary. If God thinks that murder is sin, I think that murder is sin. I am to think God's thoughts after him. And how do I know God's thoughts? The scriptures. That's why I need to be a student of the scriptures, so I know what God thinks about things. And then I am commanded by faith to think those things as well, and to have that move my actions. So we need to think God's thoughts after him. So again, the positive side of faith is it's consumed with the things of God. The person of faith knows what God loves. They have searched the scriptures. They've discovered the heart of God. And when they find those truths in scripture, which tell of the pleasures of God, they pursue them, they protect them, and they defend those things at any cost at all. So there's an activity with faith. There's an activity. And so we see that with Moses' parents. They, thought that, they saw that the child was beautiful. They knew that God thought that the child was beautiful. So what are we going to do now? It's law that this baby boy needs to die. Well, are we going to obey the law and give him over or allow somebody to take him? No. We need to have an action that corresponds with our belief, which corresponds with what God delights in. So what do they do? They hide him by faith. They hide Moses by faith. And if they were to give him over or allow him to be taken, really what they would be expressing is that they really don't have faith at all. And they really don't think God's thoughts after him. Now notice what Moses' parents did not do in a broader sense. 
you can just imagine, you know, they're very, they're very aware that if they have a baby boy, he's probably going to die. And they're very aware that if they try to hide him, it's probably likely that they're going to get caught and they're also going to get killed and the baby boy. They're very aware of this. Very aware of this. And so you can just imagine, you know, his parents probably having a discussion, you know, maybe we should maybe try not to have kids right now. This might not be the best time to have children. You know, there's obviously not modern technology, birth control stuff, but there's still ways, natural ways to keep yourself from conceiving. Maybe we should try those natural ways and not bring a kid into this, into slavery, first of all, and then probably have a chance of getting murdered and killed and drowned in the now. Maybe we shouldn't have kids. But faith doesn't think like that. Faith does not think like that. Faith delights in the things of God and then pursues him no matter the circumstances, no matter what's going on in life. Life is always going to be against the believer. And by faith, we pursue the things of God no matter what. And so worship. Worship is a great example for us today. Today, You know, you're probably thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't go to church on Sunday because of all that's going on in life. You know, the, the government has maybe said we shouldn't meet because of safety stuff. Faith does not think, maybe I shouldn't go to worship. Faith knows that God delights in worship and faith pursues it no matter what, no matter the cost. That's what faith does. It doesn't consider the circumstances. It considers what God thinks and it pursues it actively. And that's what Moses' parents did by faith. So that brings us to our second element of Christian faith, and that is that Christian faith rejects the things of the world. So we had a positive side to faith, now we're going to have a negative side to faith. Christian faith rejects the things of the world. And we see this primarily in two ways in our text. The first way is a lack of fear of man. By faith, we don't fear man. And the second way that we see this is that we choose not to identify with the world. And so let's actually look at the first part of that, a lack of fear of man. Look at verse 23 and verse 27 with me. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king. So both Moses' parents and Moses did not fear the king. They did not fear his threats. And indeed, it was the threat of death. So, the first way that faith is against the things of the world is expressed, again, by Moses' and his parents not fearing man. This is the negative side of faith. They're against Pharaoh, they're against death, they're against sin in the world. Now, the positive side of that would be, I don't fear man, but I fear God. I positively fear God. And that's a good thing. That's a good aspect of faith. So them not fearing Pharaoh meant that they were living in a healthy and faithful fear of God. So Moses and his parents feared God. Now I want you to see something pretty interesting about this whole circumstance happening in Exodus 1. We're going to actually flip to Exodus uh, 1 right now. It'll be on the screen behind you, I think. But I want to read something. And I already explained this, but... We're going to read it, and we're going to see something that was happening during this time. Starting in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a a daughter, uh, she shall live. 
But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to, the, to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them, which was a lie. So God dealt with, well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. They lied to Pharaoh, and what did God do? So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. He blessed the people. And because the midwives feared God, feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So we see that even the midwives, Hebrew midwives, they feared God. And they disobeyed Pharaoh. And God blessed them for it. He blessed them. He gave them families, blessed the Hebrew people. And that's very, very interesting. If you are a faithful Christian, you do not fear man. You fear God. You do not obey the wicked orders of man. You obey God no matter the cost. And what was the cost? The cost was death. Pharaoh bought the lie of the Hebrew midwives. They didn't know he was going to buy the lie. He did, and they lived but they, they knew, they said that knowing that if he figures this out, we're dead. We're dead. That's the cost. Death is the cost. Yet, that's not what, faith does not fear death. Fears God. Listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 12, 4 through 7. Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So we are to be people who fear God. So let's, let's think about our definition of faith that we saw in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Then those without faith have no hope in life after death. Because you can't see life after death. We can't see it. We can't touch it right now. We have faith in that. But those without faith, they have no hope in life after death. Which means that this life is all that they got. This is all that they got. And if this life is all that they got, then death is the ultimate evil. Death is, above all things, to be feared. And so that's the logic. If you don't fear God, if you don't have faith, if you don't have an assurance of, of the things to come, then you fear death. And then, logically, you also fear the one who threatens you with death. And so, yes, if you're not a Christian, and if Pharaoh comes to you and says, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this, that's terrifying because this life is all I got. Well, I better protect it. I better obey. I better obey. Yet the faithful Christian does not fear death because they have rejected the things of this world and are living for a life to come. Death is a doorway into the next life. And that way, to a Christian, the threat of death is actually laughable. The threat of death has no power over the faithful Christian. Death does nothing but give me what I want. I want to be with Christ. And if you threaten death, well, 
That's exactly what I want. I want to be with Christ. Paul says, to die is gain. I will gain, okay? Kill me, I'll gain from that. I don't fear death. And if anything, if COVID has done anything for us, it's shown us that so many people in this country fear death. And it does not matter where death comes from. It could be from murder. It could be from COVID. It could be from getting in a car accident. Whatever it is, you're going to die. You're going to die some way, somehow. But we as faithful Christians do not fear death in any way. And we pursue the things that God loves and that God delights in. Now look at verse 24 with me. So that's the first part. We don't fear death. But now we're going to look at the other part. We don't identify with the people of the world. Verse 24, it says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to, call, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So Moses chose not to identify as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. As you know the story, uh, the parents hid Moses for three months. They couldn't hide him any longer, so they made this basket. They put some tar on it. They put Moses in the basket, sent him down the river, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh's daughter adopted him as her own and raised him in Pharaoh's household. And so by faith, Moses chose not to identify as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And this is paralleled with the end of verse 25. It says this, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So the fleeting pleasures of sin are connected with identifying with Pharaoh's daughter. So if I identify with Pharaoh's daughter. In this context, it means that I'm also identifying with the fleeting pleasures of sin. And so Moses, he, he, he grew up in Pharaoh's household for 40 years. 40 years he lived in Pharaoh's household with all the luxuries of the world, anything you could ever have wanted. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were the most powerful people in the world at that time. Imagine that. Imagine today you growing up in whoever it would be, I don't know who it would be, the most powerful person in the world and their household, with all the money and everything you could imagine, growing up in that household and yet rejecting it. All the comforts, all the recreation, they had the best education, they had everything. Moses had everything at his fingertips. He chose to reject it. Now, metaphorically speaking, uh, at one point in our lives, we were all sons of Pharaoh's daughter, pursuing the pleasures of sin. Every one of us live a life trying to gratify the desires of the flesh. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Every single one of us. That's where we, metaphorically speaking, we were sons of Pharaoh's daughter. However, through God's power and salvation, we who are Christians are a new people now with new desires. Our old selves have died in Christ. We're children of God now. And so we must identify with the people of God and identify as children of God, not children of the world, not children of Pharaoh's daughter. And then therefore, again, we must delight in the things that God delights in. God desires holiness. He desires worship. He desires justice according to his righteous law. He desires that we throw away that old self, that Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 self. 
and the people of the world. They don't worship God. Why would we identify with people that don't worship God? They do not pursue holiness, but rather wickedness and impurity. They do not practice justice according to God's righteous law. Why would we identify with them? We who are saved are completely different people. We're completely different. Our citizenship is not even here anymore. It's in heaven. Why would we identify with the world? We can't identify with the world. We have to identify with God. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. He says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, he, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We can't love the world. And if you love the world, you show yourself, you expose yourself as being not a Christian and not having faith. The faithful person, the faithful Christian, Moses, his parents, they did not love the world. So Moses had to make a decision. He was raised for 40 years in this household, had everything, got used to a life of luxury, got used to it. He had to make a decision. What am I going to do? Am I going to identify with sin or am I going to identify with the people of God as I should? So he chooses to identify with the people of God. He rejects the world. By faith, he did not refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, as we think about ourselves here, thinking, well, does that mean that I just need to like sell everything and live as a monk and some you know, cabin in the middle of nowhere and cut myself from all things in this world and sell all my possessions and starve myself because food is also bad because you know, it's fun to eat food. I can't eat food and I can't have relationships or none of that stuff. No, that doesn't mean that at all. And some people in church history actually thought that that was how you become like God. And so they lived an ascetic life where they rejected all the physical things in life because the physical is bad, but the physical is not bad. You remember from Genesis 1 and 2? God made all the physical things and he said it was good. So that's not what this means. That's not what Moses did. What it means is that we do not look to these things as our source of joy, our source of hope, our source of pleasure, our source of security and and safety. We don't look to the things of the world for that. We look to God for all all of those things. Because all of these things that we can feel and touch and see with our eyes, they will burn up one day. They're temporal. We can't put our trust in them. We must put our trust in God. God alone satisfies us. So that's what that means. So the Egyptians, they were like every other unbelieving people that have ever lived. They looked for satisfaction and meaning in the created things. But we as Christians are not to do that. We know that our meaning and our purpose comes from God alone, the creator, not the creation. And that is if you, why if you find pleasure in the things of the world, your faith and trust in the things of the world, it's idolatry. And that's why if you covet the things of the world, it's equated with idolatry. Paul says that coveting is idolatry. And we are commanded to worship God alone. And so trusting in the things of the world is actually disobeying the first commandment, not to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. So, that brings us to our third defining element of a Christian of Christian faith, and that is that Christian faith 
embraces suffering. Christian faith embraces suffering. So look at verses 25 and 26 now. So he, Moses rejects the things of the world. He does not identify with Pharaoh's daughter. 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Verse 26, he considered the reproach, the reproach of Christ's greater wealth. So Moses, by faith, embraced suffering. He embraced suffering. Again, he had all the luxuries of the world at his fingertips, but he chose suffering. The faithful Christian knows that suffering and persecution is the promise for this life. It's the promise for this life. When you reject the world, the world rejects you. That's a guarantee. When you reject the world, the world rejects you every time. Every time. And when the world rejects you, it's painful. It's suffering. It's persecution every time. Now, we could go through a whole bunch of texts that prove this. We're going to look at three. Uh, first one, John 15, 20, Jesus says this, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's a promise. That's guaranteed. First Peter 4, 12 through 17, Peter says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as Rejoice and be is revealed, insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. A promise, a guarantee. Persecution, guaranteed. Peter, before the text that we looked at, he even says, we've been called to this. We've been called to suffer for the sake of Christ. So we could go on with passages that defend this, they're all over Scripture. Indeed, so explicit is the promise of suffering for the Christian that the one who says they're a Christian that thinks that they should not have suffering in their life and expects to have a life free of suffering is actually exposing themselves to probably not be a Christian. Or at least not thinking like a Christian in that moment. Or maybe very, very, very young in their faith. That could be the case. But suffering is so explicit in Scripture for the Christian that when you don't think you should be suffering as a Christian, well then, maybe you're not a Christian. Because we have been called to follow the example of Christ. And Christ came to suffer. Christ came to be persecuted. And we must follow in his footsteps because we are not greater than our master. They persecuted him, but persecute you. And that's why Jesus when he preaches the gospel, he says, count the cost. Count the cost. There is a cost. Even Cody said last week that even showing mercy to people, there's a cost of showing mercy. There's always a cost with the Christian life. Count it. You see Christ is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. 
Are you willing to give up everything for Christ? There is a cost to following Christ. But it's worth it. And you can only see it as worth it if you have faith. Because faith looks to the things that are not seen. Faith looks to the things that are not seen. Now, let's look at verse 26. This is really interesting. Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Is that interesting to you? I mean, because Jesus was 1,500 years away. This was 1,500 years before Jesus lived on earth. So why does the author of Hebrews say that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth? Christ didn't, wasn't on earth yet. Certainly Moses was looking forward to a savior, but he didn't know specifically who that would be. So why does the author of Hebrews say that? Well, the, the amazing thing about the cross is that it saved those who came before as well as those who came after. So we are saved by the cross of Christ 2,000 years ago, and Moses was saved by the cross of Christ 1,500 years before the cross. We're saved, you know, we're 2,000 years after, saved by the cross. It doesn't matter if it's before or after, the cross is the one that saves. And we also learn in the New Testament that if the people of God are persecuted, it's as though they are persecuting Jesus himself. If you remember the conversion of Paul, what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So when the world persecutes the church, Christian, they persecute Christ. And so if there was believers who live by faith, people of God in the Old Testament, when they persecuted the people of God in the Old Testament, they were persecuting Christ. The author of Hebrews knew this. So that's why he said he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. Jesus was being persecuted with his Old Testament saints as well. So just as we are called to follow the example of Christ by suffering for doing good, so Moses and the Old Testament saints were as well. Christ is the ultimate example of the one who endures suffering and trials for the glory of the Father. If we go to the end of this section, it actually ends in chapter 12. Uh, listen to what the author says in the, end of, or the beginning of chapter 12 to end this section. He says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. That's incredible. So yes, we as Christians suffer. When we suffer for the sake of Christ, we express strong faith. We put our faith on display. We show ourselves to be faithful. But notice, again, the pattern here. How did Moses, how did Jesus endure the suffering? Let's look at our text. Let's look at how Moses endured the suffering. Back to chapter 11 now. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now that sounds a lot like our definition of faith in verse 1, doesn't it? 
Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. He was looking to this reward in heaven that he cannot see. He followed and looked towards Christ who he could not see. God is invisible, yet he looked towards him. That's how he got through the suffering. That's how the faithful Christian lives, looking to the things unseen. So you persevere, you endure by looking towards heaven. So the Christian, they're, they're one who is able to look past all the things of the world as Moses was, all the treasure, your house, your car, your family, your kids, your bank account, everything. Your lake cabin, your retirement plan, all your toys, all your guns, everything that you have in life, all this physical stuff, the faithful Christian is able to look beyond it. To look beyond it. Even your, you know, these things that we think we have a right to, your, your freedom, your image in this life, your reputation, these things of the world that we think we deserve, can you look past it? Can you look past it? Or are you so fixated on the things that you can touch and smell and taste? And if you can't look past these things, then you can't live as a Christian. It's just as simple as that. The only way you can endure this life is if you can look past them. And if you have no confidence in the things unseen, you will grab the things that you do see. Get while the getting's good. You know what? I can be guaranteed that this pulpit exists. I can feel it. You know, this is here. I better just store this up because I know this is real. And I can't see the things in heaven. I can't see God. So, you know, I don't really know if he exists. I don't really know if there's this treasure waiting for me in heaven, this new body, this glorified body. I don't really know if that exists. So I better just get the things that I do know that exist. I'm just going to store them up. I'm going to build barns and store up grain. And that's what I'm going to do because I know that this is real. I can feel it. I can touch it. I can see it. So get while the getting's good. That's how the person of the world thinks. That's not how faith thinks. Faith has an absolute confidence, an absolute assurance in life to come. We look to the things that are unseen. We look to him who is invisible. We resist the treasures of the world. We set our eyes on heaven. And how are we told, how are we made aware of these things unseen? the scriptures. The scriptures tell us of the things unseen and we trust them by faith. If you're not rooted in the scriptures, it's almost impossible to trust and have assurance in the things unseen because the scriptures are the place that tell us of those things. And so that brings us to our last, fourth and final element of Christian faith and that is that Christian faith trusts in God's way of salvation. Christian faith trusts in God's way of salvation Look at verse 28 with me. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So if you guys are familiar, Moses rejected the the Egyptians at age 40, went on into the wilderness for another 40 years, returned at age 80 and went right to Pharaoh's household and said, set my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and didn't let him go. And so God sent plagues, 10 of them, And after every plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart, didn't set 
God's people go. And so finally, he sends the 10th plague, which is the death of the firstborn. Very reminiscent of Pharaoh's evil edict to kill all the little boys, Hebrew little boys. And so God says, I'm going to kill every single firstborn boy in every household in Egypt, including the Hebrew households. Every single one of them will get touched by this judgment, except if you do this, you will get passed over. And what do you have to do? You have to take a spotless lamb with no blemish, and you are to sacrifice him and take the blood of that lamb with a hyssop branch, and you're going to spread that blood over your doorpost. And when the, this destroyer, this angel comes to kill the firstborn, if this angel sees this, this, this blood of the lamb on your doorpost, he's going to pass over your household. And your little boy will live. And so by faith, every single Hebrew family did this. And they did not get the judgment. They, by faith, trusted in God's way of salvation. But none of the Egyptians did, of course, because they did not have faith. And so there was great weeping and sorrow in Egypt that night because every single Egyptian family, if they had a boy, lost that boy. And so we as Christians, we trust in God's way of salvation. That event, that Passover event, foreshadowed what was to come. And what was to come? The life of Christ, the spotless lamb, who lived a perfect life that we could not live, perfectly obeyed the law. And then, in his young 30s, he went to the cross, and his blood was shed, the spotless lamb's blood was shed, in our place. And he took the sin of the world on his shoulders. Everyone who would believe in Christ, their sin was on Christ. And he stood in their, in their place. And he took the wrath of the Father in their, in their place. If you are a Christian here today, your sin was on Christ and he was punished by God the Father in your place. And his blood was shed in your place. Your blood should have been shed. You should have died. You should have faced the wrath of the Father. But Christ did it in your place. And then he says that if you would believe in me and repent of your sin, I will forgive you of your sins. I will give you my righteous record. Christ will give you his righteousness, his righteous record, if you believe him by faith. And then you can have eternal life. So do you trust in God's way of salvation? The Christian does, by faith, trust that Christ paid the penalty, that Christ won their forgiveness. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, I urge you, do it now. Trust in Christ. Believe in him. Repent of your sin. And trust that he has covered the cost and that you can have eternal life in him. So, remember this. Faith has two sides. Two sides to the coin. The positive and the negative. Faith is for the things of God. It delights in the things of God. It, It trusts in God. Faith fears God. On the other side, faith rejects the world. Faith does not fear man, and faith is not shaken by the threats of man. And faith looks towards the reward in heaven, to the things that are not seen. To the, faith sees him who is invisible. And faith endures the suffering. Faith embraces the suffering that is to come. And faith finally trusts in God's way of salvation. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you so much that you have provided a way for us to be saved through faith. And Lord, this has always been the way in which you save someone. You save them through faith. Every Old Testament saint that knows you, Lord, knows you by faith. So Lord, would we go out today and the rest of this day and the rest of the week, Lord, living by faith, walking by faith, having an assurance in the things that we cannot see, having confidence in you who is visible in heaven. So encourage us with this word, encourage us with this word. And Lord, would we faith today in your name.